This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by The Athletic. Subscribe to The Athletic today. Enjoy coverage that goes beyond game recaps to provide smart analysis and a deeper perspective about teams and leagues. Their model is simple. There's no ads, no pop-ups, no autoplay videos. You get full access to all national local college football coverage, plus stories, podcasts, and videos from all sports. Check it out at theathletic.com slash art for 40% off a yearly subscription. That comes out to about $2.99 a month at theathletic.com slash art. Check it out. I've checked out the stories that they've run on the Sooners. It's really good. Good coverage, no ads. Theathletic.com slash art for 40% off a yearly subscription. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Cloud, the King of Crash, the Great Bambino. Of course, I'm talking about Babe Ruth, who died over 70 years ago, but his legend still lives on in big league stadiums and little league fields across America. While we know a lot about Ruth's baseball career, little was known about his early life and how it shaped him to become America's first superstar athlete and celebrity. My guest today sought to remedy that in her recently published biography, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. Her name is Jane Levy. She's a former sports journalist and the author of two other biographies of baseball greats. We begin our conversation discussing Ruth's sad and difficult childhood in a Baltimore boarding school and how he learned to play baseball from the Zverian brothers who ran it. We then shift to how Ruth's hunger for affirmation helped him become the country's first real celebrity and how his baseball career coincided with the burgeoning fields of public relations and technology, ushering in a new era of sports writing, endorsements, and entertainment. We end our conversation discussing Ruth's legacy in the world and business of professional sports. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Ruth. Jane joins you now via clearcast.io. Jane Levy, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be doing this. So you got a new biography out about Babe Ruth. It's called The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. So there's a couple of biographies about the babe out you know, for the 70 years since he's died. Even while he was alive, people were writing biographies about him. Why did you think the time was right for another biography about Babe Ruth? Truthfully, I didn't think the time was right for another biography of him. It was the last thing I wanted to do, in part because there have been so many biographies of him, as you mentioned, starting back when he was still alive. I think the first one was uh, ghostwritten in, in 1928, and that was an autobiography, obviously. But the guys who came before me, uh, most notably Bob Creamer, who wrote Babe in 1974, and there was a whole constellation of books published then because it was just as Henry Aaron was approaching Ruth's career home run record, 714. They, they all did in some way a really, really good job. But when I sat down and read all of those books, which I did before actually signing a contract and agreeing to do this, what was most notable was the omission of his entire childhood. Now, sports biographies have always been a kind of subgenre. You wouldn't be able to write a biography of Winston Churchill or, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt and leave out the first 20 pages, excuse me, first 20 years of his life. But in sports, you could, because most sports biographies were what Mickey Mantle used to call all that Jack Armstrong shit. They were hagiography, and they were often written for children, and and they were just biographies of, of sports careers, not of sports lives. And so the guys who came before me did an estimable job 
in reconstructing his career, in reconstructing day by day on the field, his, his exploits in every which way. But they couldn't really get at the whole person. And so once I established for myself that there was a whole that I might be able to fill, then I had to persuade myself that there was a way to fill it. And so I started the way most biographers do, by making a list of anybody alive that I could still talk to. And of course, that was another inhibition. Everybody that Babe Ruth basically knew or was close to is presently dead. But at the time that I started this, which was back in 2011 or 2012, his daughter, Julia Ruth Stevens, was still alive. She was a perky 95 or 96 years old. I'm not sure which. And I went to visit her at her family home in New Hampshire. And apropos of nothing that I can claim to have instigated in any smart way, she suddenly leaned over to me and said in a very kind of pert way, you do know that George Herman Ruth Sr., in other words, Babe's father, and Katie, his mother, were separated. And she, she actually sort of whispered it in a, in a confidential way. And I looked at her, my jaw dropped. I looked at her. I said, no, I did not know that. And frankly, nobody knew that. So I called up then one of his granddaughters, a daughter of his other daughter, now deceased, Dorothy. And I said, Julia said the most amazing thing. And she said, oh, hell, they weren't separated. They were divorced. And, you know, there's the moment for a reporter. You just go, aha, now I see it. Because to come from a family that was as chaotic, violent, and as uh, destructive as his was that ended up in a divorce, which was publicized at the time in the, the hometown papers. George Herman Ruth Sr.'s divorce from Katie made news in the Baltimore Sun and the Baltimore American in May 1906. But when Babe Ruth was alive and playing and being asked questions, which I assume he was asked to some extent about where he came from, about his parents, that wasn't something you talked about. There were no 20-minute segments on 60 Minutes in which to air one's, you know, personal history and, and, and gather sympathy for having triumphed over them. So Babe Ruth kept it quiet. He never, ever, ever talked about where his family was, where they came from. He never answered any questions. And so I hoped going into it that if I could fill in that hole and find the boy that his family called Little George, I might be able to explain the relationship between Little George and the big fella that he became. So that's the big idea in your book. To understand it Babe is. Ruth, you have to understand his childhood. And it, it's interesting because there's sort of... Because Babe didn't talk. I think Freud would say this. Right, thing, right. By the way, yeah. Uh, but I mean, like, yeah, Babe, he, since he never talked about his childhood, there's sort of these myths that he was an orphan and that he didn't have any parents or his parents died. But as you said, that wasn't the case. No, in fact, what happened was this the divorce was ugly. And uh, the causes um, that were stated in the Baltimore Sun for granting this divorce to George Sr. were adultery and, and drunkenness. So all I had to do, and this doesn't make me a great reporter, it makes me a lucky reporter, was go into the 
archives of the Maryland, uh, Maryland State Archives and type in the words George Herman Ruth V. I contributed the V, Katie Ruth, and up popped a 150-page dossier with all the depositions, police reports, et cetera, et cetera, revealing just, again, how chaotic, violent, and destructive this family and this disintegration of the family was. George Sr., according to the his testimony in the divorce, found his wife uh, on the, quote, dinging room floor with one of his bartenders, George Ruth having managed or owned several bars around Baltimore in Babe's time. And um, so who was going to talk about that? You didn't talk about that in 1906 or 1920 or 1927 when Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs and is king of the world. You just didn't say it out loud. Today, you know, everybody gets divorced, right? So big schmear. But back then, no. So the reason that he was sent away was speculated upon forever since he wouldn't ever say what really had happened. So people came to two conclusions. One was that he was an incorrigible, which was a legal term used back then to describe boys who got in trouble with the law and who who were sent by the courts to a quasi-public institution, in this case, St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, which was a school that sat outside the main downtown of Baltimore on the, on the cusp of Baltimore City and where they accepted incorrigibles as they were legally defined. They also d- accepted wayward boys, abandoned boys, orphaned boys and boarding students. So I'll often go around to groups when I talk and say, which do you think Beirut was? And everybody will raise their hand and say, oh, he was a bad kid. He was, you know, he was stealing stuff on the waterfront. He was getting in trouble with the law. And other people raise their hand and say, oh, no, no, he was an orphan. St. Mary's was an orphanage. Well, yes, they took some orphans, but they were not primarily an orphanage. In fact, Babe Ruth was a boarding student, and his father paid for him to live there and never bothered to go visit him once, by the way, in the entire time that he was um, living there. The boys thought of themselves as inmates. There really was no place else for them to go. There were not you know, big fences and guys with guns on the roof, as has often been written. But it was not a warm and cuddly atmosphere. And it was to Babe Ruth's advantage to allow people to conclude two completely opposite and erroneous things about him rather than to tell the truth. A reporter from St. Louis said to him in 1929, well, you're an orphan, right, babe? And he got really angry and he would pound his fist on the table and say, no, I had parents, but he would never go further than that. Well, you were a really bad kid. No, I wasn't a bad kid. Ask the brothers at St. Mary's. There's a Varian brothers, a teaching order that ran the school, but he never filled in the gaps. And so the myths proliferated and became set in amber and he couldn't escape them after a while. And he didn't really have much interest in doing so. So what, what I thought was interesting about this book is it's not a life to death narrative of Ruth's life. Rather, what you do is you take this barnstorming tour that Ruth and Lou Gehrig did after the 1927 baseball season and use that as a jumping off point to explore different parts of Ruth's life. So first, talk about what this barnstorming, because I didn't know that this happened back in the 20s and 
professional baseball, what that is. And then why'd you use, use this as the, the narrative framework for Ruth's life? Sure. Barnstorming, which is, of course, an aviator's term. It's what, you know, used to call it when aviators in the early years, like Lindbergh, would fly in and out of cities and small planes delivering mail and things. Barnstorming was a long time tradition uh, for ballplayers who, of course, didn't make a lot of money back in the day to make extra money during the off season. And they would organize teams, sometimes around a couple of stars. There was a, for a while, there was a Babe Ruth all-star team, but even Bob Feller and, you know, had a, had a traveling barnstorming team in the forties. So it, it, it was a tradition. And what I wanted to do was get Babe Ruth out of the city. I wanted to be able to give a portrait of him at the apex of his career. So this tour in 1927, organized by his agent, Christy Walsh, was almost a victory lap of the country. It starts just 10 days after he's hit his 60th home run. And they go caravanning from town to town to town and playing essentially not quite pickup games, but they play baseball games against some, sometimes a minor league team or a semi-pro team. Remember, there was a lot of baseball talent in America and people played in organized leagues and they would collect money wherever they went. And Christy Walsh, who was very, very savvy, made sure to get the money up front. And when they didn't get the money up front, one time in Asbury Park, Babe and Gehrig sat in their underwear in a hotel suite at, uh, at a hotel <laughs> waiting for somebody to come up with the cash. So what, what it did was it be, it was able, it, what this did was allow me to show Babe Ruth at the absolute apex of his fame and to show what it was like to be him and to be around him. And that you didn't really get in the New York papers because New York writers basically didn't write what he said. They often made it up or they just didn't quote him at all. But the local reporters for whom this was a once in a lifetime event that Babe Ruth was coming to their town wrote down every detail of what they said, what they did, who they got an award from, what the woman was wearing, who got, who gave them the award, you name it. So there was a, a gold mine of, of, of information that could give you a flavor of what it was like to be him. Because to be Babe Ruth in 1927 was to be the first really great modern celebrity. And I would, I would say, and I think I did say he was the most famous man in America who wanted that fame. Lindbergh, obviously, who had crossed the Atlantic in his, in the spirit of St. Louis that year, he was as famous, certainly, but he didn't really want to be. He liked being up in the sky away from the pressing the flesh. Babe Ruth, the little boy who was sent away to an institution at age seven, where he learned how to be public. He lived in dorms with boys who slept head to toe in rose beds that were separated by just a bent wood chair. He was never alone as a kid. So what he learned as a little boy, and this was the revelation for me, what he learned was how to be public. And he learned to be comfortable, surrounded by a mass of male energy. And so with the pictures you see of him, and one especially taken in Syracuse in 1925 during a Yankee uh, off day, when they played an exhibition game there, where 5,000 boys 
try to cram themselves into a single frame with the babe and they're draped over him like a cheap fur boa and they can't get enough of him. And more to the point, he can't get enough of them. Babe wanted to be famous, but did he start playing baseball so he could be famous and be a celebrity or did did he, he, he have a talent for baseball that people recognize and he became a celebrity and then he's like, that feels good and just did more to foster that? Baseball was an organizing principle at St. Mary's. They had a, a chronically overcrowded place and the way they could channel all that energy was to organize leagues and teams. And so whenever they weren't in the classroom and they weren't in the classroom all day, the way, you know, kids are today or in, or in, would have been in regular schools. They sent them outside morning, noon and night, you know, spring, summer, fall and winter to play baseball. So he, ha- it was almost like a farm system for growing baseball talent. And he stood out from the beginning, partly because he was bigger than everybody else. Later in his, uh, time at St. Mary's, people would assume that he was a staff member because he was so much bigger than everybody else. There was a system of athletics there and people who really knew the game and how to teach it. The one who is most often credited with um, having turned him into the ball player he is was a guy named Brother Matthias, who was a kind of a mythical giant, uh, depending on who you believed. He was 6'4", or 6'6", and 225, or 250. And he certainly was there, and he certainly had a lot to do with the Bay, but he wasn't the only one. There were a couple of other brothers who knew their stuff out on the ball field. And he was given an, an opportunity to shine. And this was a kid who needed to shine and who wanted the attention that clearly he wasn't getting in any other way. At St. Mary's, you got visitors on a Sunday once a month. And, you know, one of the few remaining accounts of his life there, a friend of his wrote that another Sunday came and went and Babe had no visitors. And he said, "Uh, I guess I'm just too big and ugly to visit. So this was a kid who needed and wanted attention. And and what better way to get it? Then by throwing a, a, a ball f- further and harder than anybody else could, because of course, first he was a pitcher, as we all know. So he didn't set out to be famous. That kind of fame didn't exist in certainly in sports. Remember when he was a rookie with the Boston Red Sox in 1914, having been mustered out of St. Mary's by Jack Dunn, owner of the minor league Baltimore Orioles, and then sold just six months later to the Red Sox. Fame was a local thing. It was the the circumference of the distribution of a local newspaper, where as far as a newspaper boy could hurl, hurl you know, the morning paper, there was no radio. So what you learned about famous acts and things after the fact. So one of the fascinating things about Babe's life is to look at it in terms of how much the country changed. And felicitously for him, it changed so profoundly in a kind of revolutionary moment in the 20s, just as he was assuming the you know full height of his powers. And there were people in Babe's life that were facilitating this change in modern America. And you mentioned one of them, Christy Walsh, who was sort of his manager. Like This is the thing, like you said, like Babe Ruth created a whole new world that didn't exist before him. And something that didn't exist 
really at that time before him were a sports manager or an agent or a PR person. Christy Walsh was kind of like all this and wrapped up into one. So tell us about him and his influence in Ruth's life, as but as well as shaping what sports is today or what celebrity is today. So Christy Walsh was a failed sports writer, failed sports cartoonist, failed uh, car uh, account manager at, a, at an advertising place. When in the in February 1921, he decided that the only way he was going to get himself out of his latest jam of being fired by an, a, an advertising company in New York was to hook up with Babe Ruth. Now, of course, everybody wanted to hook up with Babe Ruth. He had been, he had been sold to the Yankees at at, uh, December 26, 1919. He had played his first season in New York to great, you know, acclaim and an unprecedented show of power. And now everybody wants a part of him. And Christy, who's Christy Walsh? How's he going to, how's he going to get, you know, in front of Babe Ruth to, uh, position himself to represent him. Well, finally, uh, and his nephew, uh, Christie's nephew, told me this. In desperation, he found out where Babe was staying in a hotel, climbed up the outside fire escape that, you know, you have those clinging to buildings in New York City, opened the, the window to his room a crack, saw Babe Ruth in bed with a blonde, climbed through the window, slapped him on the butt and said, I want to represent you. And what, what he wanted to represent him in was selling ghostwritten stories under his name. Now, again, there is no radio. How are people going to hear what their heroes have to say about the games and the World Series and their triumphs and their, you know, despair? They're going to read columns that are published and syndicated and published across the country in these little 600, 800 word articles that are purportedly written by their heroes. Well, in fact, their heroes never wrote them. Babe Ruth never wrote his columns. Christy Walsh would find a ghostwriter, initially himself, and then later important New York sports writers, to put words in Babe Ruth's mouth. But he did it successfully, and he created a system that was so successful that ultimately he had Ruth and Gehrig and John McGraw, the manager of the giant New York Giants, and Miller Huggins, the manager of the Yankees, and on and on. He cornered the market in that kind of talent. And people kind of knew that this was not really necessarily what they exactly said, but it still gave the illusion that the athletes were talking directly to them. And Walsh was so successful at this. And Babe, you know, comes to New York just as the field of marketing and public relations is taking shape and Madison Avenue is being born under the tutelage of Edward Bernays and Ivy Lee. And people are learning how to sell things, commodities, personalities, politicians to people who didn't necessarily know they wanted them or liked them or needed them. And Walsh applied all the techniques that those guys were using to sell soap or whatever else there was to the, to, to selling Babe Ruth. And so he got him endorsements that, you know, were in, in, that were unprecedented in their value. Other people had endorsed chewing gum or tobacco or whatever, but this was systematic and so much bigger. So that in 1927, for example, Babe Ruth becomes the first athlete to earn more from his accumulated um, activities off the field than he earned from the Yankees. 
for playing, for hitting 60 home runs and playing the outfield. So he earned, uh, 73 from the Yankees and, and uh, almost a thousand dollars more for that than that for vaudeville, for his ghost written columns, for endorsements. Um, this was a revolutionary, um, development. And what Christy Walsh understood, I think before anybody else was that athletes could be merchandised and marketed as entertainers. He understood that athletes should be paid not just for the home runs they hit out of ballparks, as in Ruth's case, but for the people they brought into ballparks. So it's a whole revolutionary and different way of looking at the worth of an athlete. And that was a radical uh, departure and, a, and, a, and, you know, Walsh is really the original Jerry Maguire, frankly. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Thanks in large part to their patented ballpark pouch, Saks underwear has changed my expectations of what a great pair of underwear should feel like. Here's how the ballpark pouch worked. It's these internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place down there. So there's no more sticking, no more chafing. It's super, super comfortable. Also, the fabric they use for the underwear is super soft, moisture wicking, and repels BO. So it keeps you dry, cool, and smelling nice. My go-to pair of Saks underwear is the Kinetic Boxer Brief. It's got the ballpark pouch. It's got sort of a compression short feel to it, which feels nice when you're squatting. And these are really comfortable, provides a lot of support. I like wearing them when I'm squatting. Feels fantastic. And if you'd like to try these out, got an offer for you. Right now, you can save 10% off and get free shipping on a pair of Saks by going to my special URL, saxunderwear.com slash AOM. So that's Saks, S-A-X-X, underwear.com slash AOM. That's Saks with two X's. You'll get 10% off and free shipping. Check out the Kinetic Boxer Brief while you're there. One last time, saxunderwear.com slash AOM. Also by The Great Courses Plus. We all deserve to be able to further our knowledge, and that's what The Great Courses Plus is all about. It's founded on the idea that education should be accessible to everyone to make it possible to learn from the brightest minds out there, including professors from the best universities in the world and experts from National Geographic and the Smithsonian. This is college-level learning, but without the student loans, pressure of homework, or grades. And The Great Courses Plus app makes it possible to watch or listen to lectures at any time. They've got lectures on just about anything you want, photography, reading, how to be a better reader, how to be a better writer, history, philosophy. One course I recommend you check out is done by a professor that I had at the University of Oklahoma. Had a big impact on me is Dr. J. Rufus Fears, and that course is Life Lessons from the Great Books. And he takes great books from all the way from the Odyssey, the Iliad, and all the way up to Theodore Roosevelt's autobiography and extracts life lessons from them. He's an engaging lecturer, super entertaining, but also just transformative the way the lessons he imparts to you. So that's the Life Lessons from Great Books by Dr. J. Rufus Fears. And if you'd like to try a free month of unlimited access to to the entire library of The Great Courses Plus, head over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Again, you're going to get a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. There's thousands of courses there. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. And when you're there and you signed up, check out Life Lessons from the Great Books by Dr. J. Rufus Fears. And now back to the show. So Walsh not only played a part in this crafting this image of Ruth that um, helped him become a, like a living legend, but you also talk about how sports writers, other sports writers contributed to this. This is a fascinating history of America as well, because before Ruth, some newspapers had sports sections. Um, very few had you know dedicated sports departments, but now that's something we take for granted. Of course, the newspaper is going to have a sports section. Of course, it's going to have a sports department. How did sports writing, or how did Babe Ruth, or what was the relationship between Babe Ruth and sports writers that I mean, do they feed off of each other? So what one sports writer, um, and I frankly couldn't find out who it was. If somebody knows, please let me know, said of Ruth, he was a Sunday buffet every day of the week. He, you know, he was the greatest story to write about 
that sports writers had ever had. And unlike other sports, you know, and basketball certainly wasn't a big deal then. The NFL was just being formed then. Baseball was daily. And 24-7 coverage was really invented to keep track of Babe Ruth. And it was invented by the New York Daily News, which was America's first tabloid, went to print in June 1919, six months before Harry Frazee, owner of the Red Sox, stupidly and legendarily sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. And suddenly people are recognizing the importance of image over word. Well, you know, think of the images of Babe Ruth and that rubbery, mobile face of his and that swing, you know, that uppercut swing as with his chin lifted as he looks towards the right field stands as he's following the flight of yet another incredible, you know, home run. So Babe Ruth demanded coverage. Marshall Hunt, the guy who covered him for the Daily News for so many years and who was the pioneer of the 24-7 coverage, basically said, you know, he was he took up two-thirds of every afternoon newspaper in New York. And this is, you know, this is known, the 20s are known as the golden age of sports, but what they really were was the golden age of sports writing and of newspapering. There were, I think, 15 daily newspapers in New York City in the 20s. And this is how people got there and got the information. Radio was not yet in those early days, you know, available to give you the scores and the updates. People gathered at street corners to wait for the afternoon paper to come in. Because, of course, remember, people were playing afternoon games. But the revolution that was going on in mass media, including tabloid news, was it was as earth-shaking and as and as profound as the the advent of personal computing in in our lifetime. So imagine suddenly there's a, the first major league game is covered on radio from Pittsburgh in the August 1921. Now it's still so revolutionary and new that that fall when the Yankees play a pivotal series against the Cleveland Indians that's going to decide the pennant. People on the east side of New York employ a guy with a pigeon to go to the polo grounds. Yankee Stadium didn't exist yet and have the pigeon fly back and forth from the ballpark to their neighborhood with updates every inning. That's how paltry information was. And of course, by 1927, things had changed so radically that the World Series was covered coast to coast not by one, but by two brand new radio networks, NBC and CBS. So Babe Ruth came along just at the right moment to be publicized and aggrandized. And the one thing they didn't do was write about his private life. There was, uh, you know, an on the field and an off the field. And nobody wanted to tread on Babe Ruth's indiscretions. Everybody knew about them. Nobody wrote about them. Walsh was very good about keeping stuff out of the press. And, but even that, you know, even that precedent was set in 1925 when suddenly he was, he was suspended on August 30th, 1925 for he'd been late. He'd been out drinking. He'd, what people didn't know was that his first marriage had fallen apart. And Miller Huggins finally is fed up and finds and suspends him. And it becomes this huge story, front page news everywhere. 
And the owner and founder of the Daily News, uh, Joseph Patterson, decides enough is enough. We're done protecting him. We're going to treat Babe Ruth as news, not as a sports icon. And they plaster the picture of his mistress, who would become his second wife, on the front page of the Daily News, and she where she would remain for three days. And the story was a huge, huge thing all across the country. So, as I said, it's a revolutionary moment for both and, and, and they took advantage of it in terms of promoting him and having him pay, be paid for it. And they also suffered in the ways that modern athletes do, being penalized by how much could now be known about them. I like the distinction you make between the two types of journalists. There's the journalists who you know went out of the way to protect Ruth's image. They didn't say anything about his negative stuff. You you called them the gee whiz journalists. And then the, the journalists who knew that you know he had some shady stuff going on in his private life weren't upset and they finally you know, disclosed it. Those are the odd nuts. Yes. Journalists. I can't take credit for those uh, terms. They've been around in sports writing forever. I think it might've been Stanley Woodward, uh, the famous sports editor of the New York Tribune, Herald Tribune, who, who coined them. But yeah, I mean, people were writing parables. Grantland Rice was the most famous of them. Nationally syndicated columnist who wrote the whole thing about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He wrote, he, they literally would write little poems at the beginning of sports columns. And they thought of themselves as writing great dramas. They didn't go down to locker rooms and ask questions. They didn't peer into locker rooms and see into lockers um, and see, you know, a, a, a thing of steroid cream in the top shelf and report on it. They thought of themselves as writing about, uh, you know, great dramas of good and evil and triumph and failure and uh, that predominated, and, and I would say it predominated probably all the way through to 1957 when the New York Yankees and Mickey Mantle et al. were invo- involved in a fracas, it was called, at the Copacabana. So sports writings always had the rap on it that it was, you know, you're writing for the, for in, the in the playpen. But it has evolved and it has um, grown up. And, you know, some readers assail it because they they want to read this sports page for enjoyment, not for, you know, tales of steroids and money and, you know, wife beating and blah, 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 blah. But it all started to come apart, you know, in 1925 with Joe Patterson and, and Babe Ruth. Yeah, and so those gee whiz journalists, like they they helped create the legend. They were they were a part of creating the legend of Ruth that's still with us today. Well, for example, uh, you know, the 1927 barnstorming tour, Walsh invited a guy along, a, a reporter and magazine writer for Collier's, who went along with them on parts of their train tour of, of the, of the country. And, you know, he fed him all this stuff about Babe as the wise elder teaching Lou Gehrig the ropes of how to be a public person and quoted him, you know, at length and seriously giving uh, Gehrig lessons in how to behave, which is in retrospect, of course, laughable. If there were any indiscretions committed on that tour, neither John B. Kennedy nor Christy Walsh were, were talking about him. But Gehrig's quoted as saying, Oh yeah, it was a real education traveling around with the, with the babe. We sure would have been arrested a number of times if it hadn't been for him. Well, probably if it hadn't been for him, they wouldn't have had uh, committed whatever offense it was that might have gotten them arrested. But it was to, was to Ruth's benefit and to Christy Walsh's benefit to promote Ruth as this is just two years after 
the 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 horror show of the revelation of you know the discord in his marriage nobody actually wrote what they may have known which was that they were already um had already signed a separation agreement but it was two years later he's trying to promote ruth as this wise elder this guy who's mature a mature man of the world who's you know figured out how to how to behave and in some ways that's actually it was actually true because having hit the bottom in 25 with this, you know, scandal about his marriage and earlier that season, the stomach ache heard around the world when he passed out and almost died on uh, route back to New York after spring training. You know, it, it, Christy Walsh really did whip him into shape. It made, he made it very clear to him that, you know, he, he had to cut back on the gambling. He had to cut back on the eating. He had to cut back on, you know, he would had to learn to keep his indiscretions private, as Paul Gallico wrote about Ruth later. And he had learned, he learned that lesson well. He wasn't completely reformed ever, charmingly, never completely reformed, but he was more careful about it. Yeah. So his private life, he lived life in excess. He ate a lot. He drank a lot, womanized. He did gambled. I mean, he did everything to the full hilt. You know, it's funny, people talk about how many hot dogs he ate, because of course, so that was the legend, was that he ate so many hot dogs, that's how he got that stomach ache heard around the world, which of course was preposterous. But at St. Mary's, those boys were fed meat once a, once a week. And guess what that meat was? Hot dogs. Is it any surprise that Babe Ruth would spend his adult life trying to fill up the holes and the emptiness of his childhood, literally with hot dogs, but then also with the, an excess of, of everything, having had so little, you know, women, beer, <laughs> you know, gambling. And he got himself into real debt so that by 25, when he signed this separation agreement from his first wife, which called for him to pay her a hundred grand over four installments over uh, four years, he didn't have the money. And the way Christy Walsh maneuvered to get complete control over him and thus, you know, saved his butt financially and put his house in order was by saying, you know, yeah, he would lend him the money that he needed to pay his taxes. But Babe Ruth had to give him permission to, to be in charge of all his money from then on. And Ruth signs this letter in, in 1926, which I found in a collection of Christy Walsh archives. And uh, at that point, Christy Walsh is no longer just the syndicator of his, of his ghostwritten columns. He becomes his money manager and his conscience and his guide. And, you know, where Ruth would have been without him is hard to describe. So you mentioned, you know, his first marriage ends because of his indiscretions. But like, what was he like as a family man? I mean, besides the indiscretions, like, did, would, you know, he came from a broken home. Did he intentionally think, I'm, I'm going to be a better dad to my kids than my dad was to me? Or did he kind of end up just repeating this, the patterns he saw that his dad uh, set down? One of the myths, again, about Babe Ruth is that as soon as he got out of St. Mary's, he ran amok, you know, filling up uh, all those holes in his resume with, you know, spending too much money, eating too much, drinking too much. That's not true. What he did when he got out of St. Mary's was try to create for himself stability and the family he never had. 
So he married Helen Woodford, a waitress that he had met in Boston at a coffee shop in October of that year. That's a hell of a year, 1914, for Babe Ruth. He gets out of St. Mary's where he's lived basically in captivity since he was seven. He's go, he signs with the Orioles. He makes his major league debut with the Red Sox. He helps, he's sent down to the minor leagues and helps the uh, Providence Grays win a championship. And then he gets married. That's not the act of a, of a, of a wild man. That's a, the act of a guy who's trying to comport with societal norms. He's trying to do the right thing and that, that it didn't work. That a marriage between a 19 year old and a 16 year old who knew nothing of the world and he knew nothing of what the world was about to offer him, that it wouldn't survive is hardly surprising. He was not a particularly great father, particularly to his first daughter, um, Dorothy, who was the, who was, who died never knowing for sure who her birth parents were. He did that he wouldn't know how to be that kind of parent is again, not surprising to me. He tried, however, he really did try. I, I, I think he was a decent guy trying to do the best that he could. It seems like with the daughter of his second wife, Claire, whom he adopted, they had a better relationship. And that was the one you talked to, Julia, right? Sure. Yes. Julia, who died um, at age 102 last winter, was absolutely devoted to him and saw him and the world through rose-colored glasses. But who blames her? Here's a guy, you know, she, her, her birth father had disappeared from her, her life. I don't, I don't even know if she knew what I found out, which was that Claire had divorced him. Claire grew up in Georgia and really was a Southern kind of gal. She had divorced him because he had beaten her. So along comes Babe Ruth and he gives her his name and he gives her a life she could never otherwise have had. That her devotion to him is completely understandable. So, I mean, Babe Ruth became a living legend, like while he was alive. Like, I can say probably one of the first, you know, sports living legends. But then the really sad part, I started feeling really sad, was when he found out he had cancer, basically, and he started just withering away. How did Ruth handle that? Like, and I mean, because that's a big drop. You're going from like your the, the prime of your life when you hit 60 home runs, and then just a few years later, you realize you're on the you know, you, you might be dying here soon. How did Ruth handle that? Well, I think he handled it gracefully, extremely gracefully. But, you know, the, the, the tragedy, if that's the right word, of his life after baseball began after he quit in 1935, midway through a very, very ill-conceived um, arrangement with the Boston Braves. The Yankees had been done with him at the end of 34. And he wasn't ready to quit. He wanted to manage. He accepted a contract from Emil Fuchs to return to Boston, allegedly to bring the Boston Braves back to success. In fact, he was just really there to, you know, bring in people because they were, they didn't have a prayer succeeding. And it was clear by the end of May 35 that there was nothing left for him to, to do on the field. Couldn't run, couldn't you know, catch a ball in the last game he played, rolled past him in the outfield and humiliated him. But from then on, baseball had no use for him. Absolutely none. There was no job. There was, he sat by the phone, Claire said, and waited for, waiting for it to ring and it never did and would cry. 
because he had made baseball into the instant and the institution and the crowds and all those boys who would pile out of rickety ballparks to surround him. He'd made them the family he didn't have as a boy. And suddenly it was gone. And the repudiation by an abandonment by this second family was a, a recapitulation of the abandonment of him as a young child. And I think that was excruciating for him. He had one very brief fling as a coach for the Dodgers. Again, he thought maybe they would hire him as a manager. This is at the end of the 30s. No go. And there was really nothing for him to do. He threw himself into raising money for war bonds in the early 40s. And in 1944, the New Yorker sent a reporter for Talk of the Town to ask him how he felt about Japanese soldiers going to their death, charging into line of fire, screaming to hell with Babe Ruth. In, in, in Japan, he was still a very big deal. And he said, well, sounds like those are the little itty bitty ones. And which I think is hilarious, but the reporter noticed that his throat sounded very hoarse. And I can't help but wonder whether that wasn't the beginning of the nasal pharyngeal cancer that would take his life. He died on August 16th, 1948, after returning back from a yet another road trip. What, what Babe Ruth knew to do was to travel, was to go out. He went on another barnstorming tour. Ford Motor Company was paying him $500 to go for each city he visited to promote baseball for boys in the Ford leagues. And he went to St. Louis where he was photographed on the field at, before Brown's game and posed with Yogi Berra, who later told me he was so nervous he didn't know what to do. Joe DiMaggio gave him a trophy. Billy DeWitt, the son of the owner, who's now the owner of the Cardinals, you know, went down in a uniform and was supposed to be taught how to hit by the babe. He was the designated child in the alleged clinic that Babe Ruth was way too weak to give. And by the way, Billy DeWitt's uniform was later used by Eddie Goodell, the, the midget who was, I know you're not supposed to say midget, but back in the day, the midget who was sent up to hit by Bill Veck, famously when he inherited the Browns from DeWitt's father. And he, he went to Minneapolis where he was interviewed. And it was his last, his last interview. It was a radio interview conducted by an 11 year old child named Johnny Ross. Johnny was blind. Babe Ruth could barely talk. The cancer that had begun to grow in the nasal passages at the back of his nose, which surgeons had been unable to remove, had grown and encircled his carotid artery. They had had to tie, you know, tie it off. He actually was guinea pig for a very early kind of chemotherapy that would prove to be in later iterations very successful and still used to some, to some extent today in suppressing certain kinds of cancers. But by, by August 1948, it, you know, the handwriting was on the wall and it was an extraordinary pain. He could eat, he could eat maybe soft boiled eggs and drink some beer. And Johnny Ross, this 11 year old kid says to him, so babe, uh, how you feeling, babe? Oh, my head's hurting, Johnny. And my throat's, you know, my throat, it really hurts to talk. Uh, well, who's going to win the pennant, babe? And he, answer some 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 such undoubtedly he said the Yankees who's got the best pitching staff babe and babe mumble something and the kid runs out of things to ask and babe Ruth magnanimously 
and sadly puts his arm around Johnny and says, it's all right. We're both just about out of words. And then he went home to die. And then the outpouring of affection. Then he was welcomed back at Yankee Stadium, where he lay in state in the rotunda that uh, in the ballpark that had been named for him, the house that was built. You know, he lived a large, larger, it's larger than life character. How did, how did he change the game of baseball? And why are we still talking about him 70 years after he died? Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the, of the Nationals in Washington, said to me he was the original original. He reconfigured the game in his own image. He took it out of the hands of the micromanagers like John McGraw, who were accustomed to moving men around the bases, station to station, you know, telling choke up. He played, they played little ball. You know, you choke up and hit one to left field and we'll move this guy from first to second. And you choke up and hit it to left field and we'll move it, you know, second to third. And Babe Ruth comes along and looks at this and he was bigger than everybody else. You know, when he gets to Boston in 1914, he's 6'2 and he weighs 185, 190 maybe. And he looks around and he says, well, why should I do that when I can take one swing and, and put an end to this? So he literally reshaped the game. The power game that is played today is a direct, you know, relative of the, of, of the power swing that Babe Ruth invented and used to hit 714 career home runs. Having changed the game and ways it was played and the expectations of booms and cracks and thwacks that would ricochet around Yankee Stadium, they then had to make ballparks and equipment. That would, that would hold him. I mean, up till then, there were like kind of bandboxes. Nobody hit balls over fences. One of the, again, then one of a writer for the New Yorker pointed out that Babe Ruth's invention of the modern power game, the home run also created a connection between player and spectator that never existed before. Because in the moment that the spectator, that the ball heads into the stands and the spectators grab it, they're, they're connected in a way they had never been before. So he recreated it in every way. He took on the institution when he confronted the first commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the former federal judge, over his right to barnstorm in the offseason. There was this crazy rule that if you were on a World Series team, you couldn't barnstorm because somehow that was going to diminish the clout of, of what was then called big league baseball. It didn't form major league baseball till later as a term of art. And Babe Ruth said to hell with that. Now he got himself in trouble and he got himself fined and suspended, but the rule was changed. And from then on, it was recognized that baseball players had a right to make a living the best way they knew how in the offseason. He took on the institution by insisting upon his right to barnstorm against African-American players, which other people did, it is true, but he was Babe Ruth. And so by playing with and against African-American players, he gave, he was giving sanction to them as players. He was also providing a, a nice payday, which God knows they needed, but he was giving credit to, and he, and he articulated that, you know, the colorful play of um, the Negro leaguers would certainly be a good thing in, in, in the major leagues. And he took on management by insisting upon his right to have someone represent his interests, Christy Walsh, and, and, and to try to 
rectify the ridiculous imbalance in, in power between owners and most of the players who were you know, semi-literate or if, if, you know, uh, or, you know, certainly not equipped to go into negotiations to represent themselves. And that imbalance would, would continue for most players all the way through till when Roger, Roger Maris broke the record. He tried to go, he tried to bring his brother with him to negotiate his 1962 contract after hitting 61 home runs in 61. And the Yankees wouldn't let him bring his brother because his brother was an accountant. So, you know, he really struck a blow for players' rights. And he understood that by barnstorming, by taking the game out beyond the Mississippi River, which is, of course, as far as Major League Baseball went in those days, he was doing something good for Major League Baseball. He was creating a market that 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 would take another 30 years for Major League Baseball to begin to exploit. And besides changing baseball, he changed sports in general. We're like we are, we see the legacy of Ruth with endorsement deals. I mean, you talk about in the book some of the strides he made in publicity law, which didn't exist before him, and cases that he fought. And those guys who've got Nike deals can thank Babe Ruth for that. And knowing how little history most athletes uh, study these days, I don't think they have any clue how much they owe him. Well, Jane Levy, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. My guest today was Jane Levy. She's the author of the book, The Big Fella. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at her website, janelevy.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Ruth, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there as well as thousands of articles written over the years about physical fitness, productivity, how to be a better husband, better father. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly or daily newsletter. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS to get a free month trial. And once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already i'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on itunes or stitcher it helps out a lot and if you've done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time this is brett mckay reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast but put what you've heard into action